Well, good morning, LCM. It is Sunday, May 28th, 2023. I cannot begin to describe to you guys how much of a joy it is to be preaching to my family this morning. Amen. Pastor Eric and I have the privilege of taking you on a journey that we will examine in the lives of three judges. Now, the reason that we are doing this is because we truly live in dark times. And the principles that are outlined in the word of God are the only answer for the days that we are living in and the days ahead. Now, we're going to turn to Philippians 2, starting in verse 14. Say there when you're there. Amen. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ and that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. I am blessed to have family that spans in more than just one congregation. In Crystal Lake, there are men pouring into my life daily. Extraordinary men like Pastor Nick Massey, Pastor Nick Slaughter, Pastor Ben Hefner, and Pastor Peter Allen. They are working hard to ensure that a new generation of disciples shines brightly that are to come and that they be proven, (laughs) shines brightly in the times that are to come and that may prove to be even darker than what we are living in today. Can y'all feel that the world is getting darker? We're going to shine brighter. Now, as you know, I am engaged to a daughter of this house. Oh! And I am being benefited by seeing the excellence of discipleship that is happening here. Everything that we share with you this morning will have one aim. That is the production of disciples that excel beyond their mentors. That is what is being done for me. And that is what my aim is to do for others. Now, if you're taking notes today, we are going to summarize everything that we share with you into three main points. Now, we will, of course, share far more than just those three points. But when we come to each of the three main points, we will alert you to them by placing them on the screens. Now, are you guys excited to go on this journey with us? Are you? Are you excited? The title of our sermon this morning is Three Judges. Yeah. So let's just jump into another text. I'm a little distracted by the radiance of Randy in the middle of the sanctuary and the contentness we see on Brother Spencer. Three-minute interval training will change your life. We're in Joshua 15. And we're going to begin in verse 13. 
Yeah, I already started with something I shouldn't have said. It's, it's going to get even better from here. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba. Somebody say Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Now, Caleb was given an inheritance in Israel. And by given, I mean the man had to fight for it. When God gives you something, don't you believe for a second, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have to clench fist with a sword and go to work. The way that he gives a man something is to give him the faith to fight for it. The thing is, is this city, Kiriath Arba, Arba is really a form of a word that means four in Hebrew. Kiriath is the city of the four. Well, the four what, you might ask? How did it get that name? Well, it happens to be that there were four giants renowned for living in Kiriath Arba. These are Shishai, Ahimon, Talmai, and their father, Anak. By the time we've picked up in this story, Anak's gone, but these three remain. And Caleb was a man that took on the giants of his time. And he took the city of the four, the city of the giants, and he turned it into Hebron. Hebron means fellowship. He took the city from the giants and he turned it into a fellowship. Now in this house, we know a little bit about taking on giants and creating fellowship. But what comes next in this text? Well, it's going to shape the battle ahead of all of us. Do you want to go with me? Verse 14. And Caleb drove out from there three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. He went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. I get it. It's early on a Sunday. I didn't prepare slides because I just didn't want to. And these just sound like Hebrew names to you. But I want to help you with them because they tell a story. The bottle that is being described at Kiriath Sefer, not Kiriath Arba. This is a new town, Kiriath Sefer. Well, Kiriath Sefer means house of the book. And when this battle is won, the Israelites rename it Debir, which means sanctuary. Can you tell that pictures are being painted here? Yeah. The truth is that many battles have already been won against giants in our midst. You guys have been doing this in the Remember series. You've been doing it since LCM was founded. All of our lives have seen giants fall. But we now face a battle for our future. We're going to have to engage in the battle for the house of the book. And we must engage in a battle for the sanctuary of God in the future for God's people. Are y'all feeling me so far? These next verses are going to tell us how we do it. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. Yeah. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. 
And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, as his wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey. That's fun in the King James. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Church, do you see what just happened? Caleb is a giant killer himself. But he gave the opportunity to Othniel to fight for the house of the book and turn it in to the sanctuary of God. Maybe the most touching thing to me at this stage in my life is Caleb offered a jewel that had been polished in the river of the Spirit and smoothed into the kind of gemstone that flies through the air and kills giants. What I'm saying is that Caleb offered his daughter, Aksa, to Othniel. Aksa, well, I think of it like offering Abigail to a young Othniel. This meant that his invitation to Othniel was not just to be a mere co-worker. It was not just to be a man of uh, limited accomplishment. I mean, what you did is good, just not as good as what I did, you know. It was not like that. The offer was to become family. Now, I, I need to tell you I'm going to avoid a Bible difficulty this morning. In fact, we're going to take a Bible difficulty and use it as a homiletic because this is LCM. You can study all day long about the relationship between Caleb and Othniel. Some will tell you that Caleb is an uncle to Othniel and Othniel is the nephew. That may not be what your translation indicates, but it is certainly possible in the Hebrew. Others will say, like many of the translations we just read, that actually what happens is Caleb and Othniel um, are half-brothers, and they're half-brothers by different moms. What we do know is that sometimes in the Bible, lines between sons and brothers have to be blurred. They have to be blurred because... If you treat somebody like a five-year-old son their entire life, shockingly, they begin to act like a five-year-old son their entire life. I'd like to bring you to our first judgment and the first point that we're asking you to write in your notes. We must sacrifice for our disciples as if they were our son. And also, somebody say also, also, receive them as equal brothers. So See, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether Othniel was a nephew or a younger brother. The truth is that Caleb sacrificed for him like he was a son by giving him the opportunity to fight for Kiriath Sefer, the house of the book. And Othniel became a man of equal stature to Caleb, if not greater. If you didn't know it, Othniel is, of course, the son-in-law of Caleb. But Othniel became a prince in the tribe of Judah. He began his life fighting for the house of the book, turning it into the sanctuary of God, and he founded his covenant on an excellent marriage, which gave him an incredible future. Would you all like to learn more about this process? Yes. 
do you have judgment number one written down? So in this battle for the house of the book, which is be going to made into the sanctuary of God, generational discipleship is the only way that this will be accomplished. I want to address some of the disciples in this room that may identify with my position. Aren't we blessed to have elders, pastors, disciplers, and shepherds in our lives that God has given to help us? We love these men that are discipling us, and we want to serve them and bless them. This is good, and it's noble. But the problem is, is that we can grow content in just doing this. What we have to understand is that this falls short of receiving the impartation to become like them. Let's look at Joshua 15, 16 again. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. You guys see how it says that Othniel needed to strike and capture the land? Brothers, this is the goal of our leaders, that we fully contend for what God has for us. We cannot just do one and not the other. Otherwise, we will fall short. We must possess the initiative to first strike a blow to the enemy and then have the perseverance to fully capture the city for the people of God. Come on, Shane Morrison. Are you going to strike a blow to the heart of the enemy? Are you going to persevere until the work of God is done in your life? Well, that's the kind of man that you might give a daughter to. Now, Caleb was a man that gave a report according to his own convictions. Caleb was a man that rose up when others shrank back. Caleb was a giant killer. That means that his influence in the life of Othniel should mean that Othniel would stand on his own convictions. Now, Othniel would stand when others shrank back. Othniel would not only strike the first blow in the battle for the house of the book, but he would also capture it and fully possess it. This is what true discipleship is. It creates men that were imparted something. When we say men that were imparted something, this is a part you want to dial into. Christians by nature should be non-compliant. There's a little bit of rebelliousness in us. The scripture tells us, do not be conformed to the image of this world. Amen. See Pastor Aragina after the service, and he will tell you about a holy defiance of Ezekiel. Amen. And because we love our leaders, and because we love what is being done, we slowly get molded into people that mostly like to be told what to do. That is not the spirit in which we were born again, and it is not the spirit of conquest that made us or will continue to sustain us. So I want to share some examples from my own life. Can I do that with you guys? Oftentimes, I have treated discipleship like it is just a punch list with helpful items. Can anyone relate to me with that? I've the engineers in the room all said, I. <laughs> I focused on compliance with what had been requested of me. All of the things that were requested of me, they were good. But the problem with this approach 
is that it only promotes compliance. The truth is, is that you and I, we are called to do far much more than just compliance. We are called to be conquerors. Like the men who have gone before us, we must learn to initiate action and persevere until we possess what is God's. What are we called to be, LCM? Conquerors. What are we called to be? Conquerors. Now, Caleb set an example with Kiriath Arba. He turned it into Hebron. Now, the thing is, is that Caleb did not give detailed instructions to Othniel regarding the steps to take Kiriath Sefer. Caleb set an example, and Othniel picked up the conquering spirit that Caleb possessed. Come on, the man didn't just conquer a city. In conquering the city, he picked up the spirit uh, that was conquering inside of Caleb. Now, I just gave you guys some practical examples of my shortcomings. But I want to tell you that with all of my heart, I am going to stop looking for just mere compliance and move straight into the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ that my disciples have modeled for me. I am learning to strike the city and to capture it. Now, the truth is, Othniel gathered the courage to strike the city himself. He captured far more than just the city. He captured the conquering spirit of Caleb. Amen? Do you need to capture the conquering spirit of the leaders in this house? Well, do you? Do you need to capture the giant killing spirit and rise up in the spirit of the Lord and get your own work done? See, it's not always that mentors are just overbearing. That's the easy way out for you. My problem is with my teacher. No, the truth is sometimes the problem is with students that simply have become accustomed to being told what they must do. The point of discipleship is not so that you can show up each day and get your list for how to take Kiriath Sefer. The point of discipleship is that you are imparted the spirit that depends on the word and the majesty of God Almighty and says, even though I'm weak, even though I'm flawed, watch me get this done in the spirit of the Lord. Brothers, Luke is like Othniel. And I've promised my daughter to him. He's more than an overcomer. And the days ahead of us are definitely going to prove that. Now, did you notice that Oxa petitioned her father for springs? This ought to remind you of something that comes from Exodus 15, 27. It is kind of the founding scripture of the one association. The truth is that Oxa petitioned her father for springs, and those springs were for the feeding of the nations. The battle over the house of the book will be won by disciples that we sacrifice for like sons and that we receive as our equal brothers. In my study of the allotment of Judah's inheritance, Judah's territory, preference was given to the one who would fight for the house of the book, which is also, of course, Debir and is referred to as the sanctuary. Can I tell you the Spirit of God will give preference to any man in this room that is fighting for the house of the book and the sanctuary of God? Caleb not only fought for his inheritance, but he also took steps to ensure that his daughter would be one 
with a man who is defined by the battle for the house of the book in the sanctuary of God. Can I tell you, fathers in the room, that's exactly what you ought to be looking for for your daughters? Don't just wait till she falls in love with somebody on a motorcycle. Those guys are dangerous. <laughs> Othniel's tenacious hunger for the sanctuary would prove to be one of the things that preserved Israel long after Caleb was gone. See, that's an important point. When Caleb was gone, Othniel was still around. The generations of disciples being raised here will do the same. We fight for the future by demanding that our disciples search the scripture and plant themselves in his presence, hear this, on their own convictions. They get to learn from our convictions. They get to compare theirs to ours, but the convictions must be their own if it is a battle they are to fight. The truth is this will make them conquerors in Christ. Notice that marriage was foundational to this concept. In fact, marriage is foundational to all forms of team covenant and ministry that flow from it. You should never get that order reversed. You can form your marriage in a team, but you will never function in a team properly without having formed your marriage properly. Anybody that is prioritizing that in the wrong order, well, stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> the marriage covenant that Othniel and Oxa shared would be the primary covenant from which the promise of the springs would come about. Friends, the nations are at stake. The nations are at stake, and they need the life-giving water that will come from the springs that are churches that we plant. Every church in the One Association is founded on the kind of marriage that Matthew and Cassidy have. Man, don't they look radiant today? Yeah, they are a product of the marriage teaching. And the reason that you can't get them to break and can barely push on them enough to get them to bend is because it was not just five or six weeks for them. It was five or six years of daily work at that. And it formed them into the kind of people that can carry ministries on their shoulders. Now, the byproduct of that is they also happen to be excellent teammates and the most encouraging thing in Jennifer and I's life. But that flows from their covenant of marriage. Marriage is always the training ground that teaches a man to both initiate, strike the blow to the enemy, and persevere in the things of God, capture the city. Let's dig a little deeper into Othniel. Y'all ready to go? This is Judges 3, 1. Now these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
We, yeah, I never heard. That's like living in downtown San Francisco. <laughs> we picked up after the death of both Caleb and Joshua here. You may not have realized it, but enough time has passed that both Joshua and Caleb have died. The elders who outlived them led Israel well, according to the beginning of Judges and the end of Joshua. And we have passed that time period. Now there are people who are 20 years old or more who have never had a good Holy Ghost fight. The situation is dark for Israel. They're in the land, but they do not possess the land. One of the saddest things imaginable is said here. Israel lived among the Canaanites. Now if we had time, I would dig into a few verses for you, but we don't. So I'm going to tell you for your notes, you go look at Numbers 14, 13. You look at Jeremiah 12, 14. You look at 1 Chronicles 22, 2. What you'll find is that whoever has the minority influence in a nation is said to live among the majority. Yeah, I can tell that didn't hit you yet. What this means is that in Israel, the Canaanites had the majority influence at this time. That's not how it was supposed to be. It's just how it was. Church, can I tell you that if you possess the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ, the conquering spirit that Caleb had, and the conquering spirit that was transferred to Othniel, you are the majority influence in any situation. Numbers don't matter at all. You and your God are a majority. This whole situation was allowed by the Lord to test those who had not yet experienced warfare. Think about that for a moment. Our good father was drawing out the conquering spirit from within his sons. It had been at least 20 years since the conquest of Joshua and Caleb. The men that were now fighting age, sadly, didn't know how to fight. They were experts in flarping. Can I tell you how important discipleship is? So that we don't raise generations of men that don't know how to battle for the house of the book. Oh, they know how to bring you your coffee. They know how to make sure that your life is easy. But they don't know how to develop and stand on their own convictions and fight for the people of God. This is what the battle for our future looks like. Can I tell you how important it is? That we get into the habit of sacrificing for them like they were our own natural sons. And in the same breath, receiving them like they are our equal brothers. Because our lives will depend on what comes from them in the future. Let's pick up in verse 6. It says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters... They gave to their sons and served their gods. Dirty shiksas. I can't tell you how tragic this is. The Tanakh warns Israel not to do this six times before this moment in history. Some examples for your notes, and we won't turn to these, but you can write them down. Genesis 24, 3. Genesis 26, 34 through 35. Genesis 27, 46, Exodus 34, 15 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, 
and Joshua 23, 12 through 13. Now, there was, however, someone that married better. There was someone who was properly discipled. Yeah, there was! In the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ. There was at least one man who knew what it was to fight for what the word of God says. Now let's keep reading to learn from his history. We're picking up in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. See how discipleship teaches you to pronounce that word? I remember years ago when somebody pronounced that slightly differently and we lost the meeting for a minute. <laughs> Verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. What did he do, Luke? Went out to war. What did he do, church? Went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, Caleb and Joshua have been gone for decades around this time. They're not here anymore to bring about the conquering spirit of the Lord. How would this story would have played out if Othniel only knew how to just comply with the request. If Othniel had just been content to bring coffee quietly to Caleb, where would Israel now be? Brothers, this is why it is so important that we capture the conquering spirit of our leaders. Come the on, you hear us, Valentine? Are you going to capture the conquering spirit? Chris Hall, are you going to capture the conquering spirit? Yeah. Let us hear your war cry, Chris. Yeah. 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 Saints, there will be a day that comes when we are not blessed by the presence of our leaders. And it falls into our hands to bring about the deliverance of the people of God. This is why they are discipling us. This is why they sacrifice for us like sons, and they also receive us like equal brothers. They are trying to impart to us the conquering and delivering spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen? My brothers, we are greatly benefited by the example of giant killers that God has given us. And now it is time to take initiative. Now is the time to stand on your own convictions that you have received personally from your battle for the house of the book. Now is the time to show the value of your sonship and rise up as a brother to be like the men who disciple you. 
This is how you show honor to them. Wait, this is what? You mean that you honor the men that you are being discipled by by rising up in the very same spirit they have? Adam Cora knows something about that. See, nobody is prouder of Adam than the men that have been pouring into his life because they see the same giant killing spirit rising in him. Discipleship is not to create sweet little confectionaries tied up like bonbons that sit there and just look pretty. Discipleship is designed to impart a warrior spirit into a new generation. Come on, any old guys in the house, don't make me call you out. Raise your own hands. You're not as strong as you once were. There's not as much vigor as there once was. Caleb had it until he was 85, but at some point, Caleb was not there anymore. Othniel had to rise. Othniel had to take the initiative. Othniel had to capture the city because Caleb was not there anymore. If you're discipling people in this house, are you willing to rest on what you've invested in them at this point? Or do you have something to impart besides rote obedience? So this is how we show honor to the men that disciple us. Now, they're not trying to just create sweet little compliant Christians. That's not their goal. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a man of God with swords in his hand. Amen. This is a lion of God, ready to do harm to the enemy or go down in the fight, trying. This is a man who is holiness or die trying. Joe, we're not going to tie your hands by just asking you to perform lists and tasks. We're trying to impart to you the absolute spirit of a conqueror that says, I will rise up. I will be married. I will raise a family. I will take a city. I can do it because the Lord is helping me to do it. I'm so thankful that God has given all of us men that are to mold us into more than conquerors. And guess what? That process starts now. It starts by standing on your biblical convictions and delivering a blow to the enemy and then moving to take back the city and to fully possess it. Look in the verses that Othniel, I mean Luke, no, I mean Othniel, just read. Israel has been subject to Kushan Rishathaim for eight years. Say that really fast. Israel is living among the Canaanites. The only hope in the situation was that God would raise up a deliverer, raise up a savior. But you're biblical scholars. Engage with this for a minute. When did Adonai start to raise up Othniel? See, that process didn't start during the eight years of darkness. It didn't wait till the leaders were dead and hoped that one would fall perfectly formed from the sky. That process started more than two decades earlier when Caleb sacrificed for Othniel like a son and then received him as an equal brother and family member. That process started when Caleb treated Othniel like family and gave him the opportunity to fight for the house of the book. Look, Othniel was not like other men. He married better. 
He was discipled better. And the Spirit of the Lord raised him up to bring 40 years of peace to Israel. <laughs> Can I tell you something beautiful? What, only Nick wants to hear something beautiful? Kushan Rishathim is defined by Nelson's Bible Dictionary as meaning double wickedness. The name Othniel is defined by McClintock and Strong's as the Lion of God. What we have in the imagery here is a time of darkness when double wickedness is reigning over the people of God. But there was a prince of the tribe of Judah. His name was Othniel. One that had been raised in the conquering spirit of the Lord. One that had founded his life on a good marriage and a battle for the book. The lion of the tribe of Judah brought deliverance to Adonai's people. This is what generational discipleship was meant to produce. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> now, we're 36 minutes into the message, so I don't have time to tell you all the ways that this scene mirrors the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't have time to tell you that this king is the king of northwest Mesopotamia, which, by the way, is Turkey. And how the Bible continually refers to a king of the north invading the beautiful land. You know, I don't have time to tell you how the passage is foreshadowing Revelation 16. I'm sure you all understand that thoroughly already anyway. I don't have time to tell you how this is a repeating pattern. And in Judges 4 and 5, we're going to see kings from the east and the north invade Israel. And God raise up another deliverer. And that it happens to be in the very valley of Armageddon called Armageddon. We don't have time to get into silliness like that. <clears throat> Instead, let me address the disciple makers in the room and in the one association. Discipleship is not a hierarchy. And it should never be a system of control to gain compliance. Those methods are impotent. And they create followers who only stroke your own ego. And they will never charge the gates of the city and persevere in the battle for the house of the book. Discipleship must be aimed at creating men that are far better than you who are discipling them. That can never be done by demeaning them. In fact, you'll have to lift them. You have to lift them when they don't feel like they are men worth lifting. You will have to actually speak into them and help create what God says must be. This can only be done for sacrificing for them like they were your sons and constantly receiving them as your brother of equal status. This requires that you show faith in Adonai, not the disciple, faith in Adonai who has the ability to raise them into the status that you have the faith to credit them with. That was a mouthful. If you have to listen to this message more than once, I suggest that you do it. Caleb put the fate of an entire city and the fate of his daughter into the hands of Othniel. I, I want you to capture that for a minute because it's getting real for us. He put the fate of the city in the hands of somebody that had not proven themselves yet. And he put his daughter in the hands of somebody who had only recently proved himself in one battle. That must be because Caleb was confident that the giant killing, conquering spirit within him would also rest on Othniel. Caleb's life, actually, I think we should just get this out there. 
Othniel, this is a long time before Othniel is known to be the first judge in the book of Judges, right? Uh, Caleb did this in advance of Othniel's success. Now compare the two men for a second. Caleb's life was an excellent life that inspired others. We all love to hear about the old guy, 85 years old, that is like, I'll kill the giant. You young people sit down, drink your Starbucks, sip your lattes, I'll get it done. However, Othniel, the Lion of God, he brought a greater length of peace and a larger scale of deliverance than Caleb's life ever did. Caleb was 85 years old. He lived some more years and died. Othniel outlived him and created 40 years of peace for the people of God. In my mind, this makes both Caleb and Othniel a success. How about yours? We're going to move to our next judge. We want to take the opportunity to judge ourselves for a moment, though. You guys have had weddings lately. You're excited. You've been dancing. You've been doing all. I, I think we could just take a serious moment for a minute. In Matthew 23, 15, the scribes and the Pharisees are accused of making disciples that are twice the sons of hell that they already were. Would you like to do that? Is that anybody's goal in this room? Because if it is, get the hell out now. We don't want you around. <laughs> to make disciples that are worse than you. Have you ever asked yourself how that happened? Or are you just content to go, those scribes, those Pharisees, we're never going to be like them. Jesus gave the answer to how this kind of discipleship failed. He did it in Matthew 23, verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. You are all what? Brothers. What if the man prayed for you to get saved? What are you? Brothers. What if the man raised you from the dead? What are you? Brothers. What if the man is the one that ordained you? What are you? Brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, when men drift into hierarchy, it actually diminishes the role of Christ in the life of their disciples. The truth is, is we do have fathers, and the Bible actually endorses that. Paul called himself that. We do have teachers, and Jesus Christ appoints them. We do have instructors. But what this verse is teaching you is that our primary relationship to every other believer on the planet is always that they are our equal brothers. You ruin discipleship when you forget that. Treating them in this manner will produce Othniels that are lions of God in every generation. This will ensure that in the dark days ahead, this community and the communities of the One Association will never be without a deliverer. Church, hear me on this, and don't think it's just because I'm old. Today's disciples are tomorrow's deliverers, literally. Amen. See, I spent some moments praying for Chris at the altar. I spent a lot of moments praying for people at times in their life when nobody else could see what they would become. This is because they are now leading churches in the one association. Today's disciples 
or quite literally tomorrow's deliverance. And that is up to us. We're all supposed to be disciple makers. So church, the covenant of marriage is the beginning of the foundation of all lifelong teams. Our congregations are literally blessed with times of warfare to train us, to draw out of us the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, as disciples, we will stand up in our status as equal brothers so that we can start to take initiative for the work of God and persevere until we have captured the city and the sanctuary of our God. Let's look at judgment one again and move forward. We must sacrifice for our disciples as if they were our sons and also receive them as equal brothers. Let's move forward into our second judge. We're going to pick up in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. I can't begin to describe to you how dark these times must have been. To start with the time period of oppression is now 18 years. That's 10 years longer than what we just read about in the days of Othniel. Moreover, the enemies doing this are the Moabites, the Ammonites, and Amalekites. This coalition is two-thirds in sensuous. And the city... We're talking about inbred relatives. I mean, it's bad enough to get whipped by superior athletes. It's quite a thing to, to get beat by inbreds. Although, some of us who played football in Livingston Parish know exactly what that's like. <laughs> now, did you guys catch which city that the Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites took possession of? City of Palms. That's Jericho. Israel is being dominated by inbred enemies, and they have lost Jericho, which was the very first victory to which where they had entered the land. Somebody say that's sad. That's sad. Let's pick up in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, this is LCM, and I know that you are familiar with the illusion of the first time. Can you imagine what the original audience, encountering this text for the first time, what they would have thought? Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's a left-handed man. Benjamin means son of my right hand. <laughs> Disciples and disciple makers are often walking in some contradiction. The Lord often chooses men most unlikely to use for the deliverance of his people. Praise God for that. Saints, can I tell you that you may have been an unlikely choice 
but should not waste the opportunity that is being set before you? Come on, somebody. I am not sure why Adonai has blessed me with the chance to be discipled by the arising church, but he has. I am not sure why Adonai has blessed me to marry royalty from LCM. But I can tell you that I plan to make the most of this opportunity. Can I ask you guys a question? Are you making the most of the opportunity that the Lord has set before you? Are you? Are you going to? I could spend all day familiarizing you with the linguistic argument surrounding the phrase left-handed. You should go back and listen to our teaching on Judges 3 years ago in Foundations. I could tell you that Rashi believes the phrase indicates that Ehud had a crippled right hand, an impeded right hand. I could tell you that the LXX simply says that Ehud was ambidextrous, meaning he could use both hands. I could tell you all about that, but I'm not going to. The point is that if Ehud had a crippled right hand, then it is an example of the Lord turning his weakness into a strength, just like Hebrews 11.34 indicates. On the other hand, <laughs> yeah, that was... If Ehud was ambidextrous, then it was a fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 6-7 where Paul tells us to have weapons of righteousness in the right and the left hand. What we want to impress upon you is what Ehud was found doing in these next verses. My friends, you don't have a weakness that our king cannot turn into a strength. Nobody can keep you from using holy weapons and savagery for our God except you. You're going to have to accept that you are brothers of equal status and that this is your time and your moment to stand up into the spirit of this house. Are you guys awake? Yeah. Let's look at verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. You mean he didn't buy it on Amazon, Luke? He made for himself a sword with two edges. You mean he didn't just take his disciples' sword? <laughs> he made for himself a sword with two edges. Come on, that's good. It was a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, to Pastor Eric's point, if Ehud had a crippled right hand, then this is a perfect way to hide the weapon of an assassin. Who checks the right side? Or I'm sorry, who checks the side of a crippled? But that is not our point. As a disciple, I want to tell you that it is the responsibility that every man in this room and in the One Association fashion a double-edged sword for yourself. More than that, it has to be bound to you at all times. Now, this sword has two edges. Each has its own purpose. The one side is to cut things away from you that do not belong to the conquering spirit of Christ. Oh, that's the first edge of the sword. The other side is to contend with the oppressors of the people of God. Any reading of 2 Timothy 3.16 will lead you to this conclusion. 
Now, if we are to stand up into our station under the victorious spirit of Jesus, then we must be masters with both edges of the sword that we fashioned by daily interaction that we have in the word on a daily basis. You see, the problem with just waiting to be told what to do or what to do with being a Christian focused on just compliance is that it does very little to fashion your own sword. Worse yet, mere compliance does nothing to strap a personal sword to your own side. We love the teachings of our mentors, and we should, but there is no substitute for hearing from Adonai through his word and carrying our own God-given convictions. Okay, I'm going to jump in here for a minute. If you're a mentor or a disciple maker, can you think of a man who required somebody else to try to carry their sword? Oh, yeah, it was Saul. <laughs> I want to encourage each of you not just to teach about the double-edged sword, but also to use your own double-edged sword to cut away from yourself selfish motives, carnal ambitions, and things that, well, they were never supposed to belong to you in Christ in the first place. Then you use the other edge in your sword to free those you are discipling so that they become far greater men than you are. Remember the word, the word, the word of God is sovereign over you both. You are not sovereign over those you disciple. You are brothers. And the word of God is sovereign over you both. The word doesn't apply to your disciple first and then you second. Your own sword should be used on you first and to free your disciple second. You never want to become a mentor that requires more of his disciples than you are personally requiring of yourself on a daily basis. That would make you a first-rate hypocrite. But I'm confident of better things in this house. Let's go ahead and move to the next verses. Can I tell you this is about to get heavy? Now, I mean, we're talking about a fat guy. I mean, OBCT, a real party barge. I'm talking about this dude is large. It's going to get heavy. Judges 3.17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Justin, can you elaborate on this from the Hebrew? Yeah, it says he was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting <clears throat> alone in his cool 70-degree roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. Saints, we're all aware in this house and should be throughout the one association that every person possesses Nabal and Abigail traits. Are you all aware of that? You may not have realized that you also have Eglon and Ehud traits. 
Eglon was corpulent. He was obese. He was fat. This speaks of his tendency towards self-indulgence. Remember, this self-indulgence was at the expense of God's people. Now, it should be noted that Eglon, well, he liked to sit in the cool roof chamber. While others were at work, he sat in comfort. Tell me that's not a description of the flesh that loves its private time and just can't get enough pampering. Your life exists for exactly one reason, and that's the furtherment of Adonai's kingdom. Have you become accustomed to having others do things for you? Yeah, nobody answered that out loud, and that's okay. You let your internal dialogue start to work on this. Guys, do you sit on your salvation and wait for your wife to wait on you hand and foot? Wife, have you become convinced that you're unable to do anything unless somebody else watches your kids? Disciplers, have you created an easy situation for yourself by having your disciples do everything for you? Tell me that's not Eglon. Well, if you were just now intuitive enough, spiritual enough, close enough to the Lord to lay your finger on some Eglon within you, well, Ehud has a message from God for the Eglon in you. Do you guys want to see what that message is? This is the message that is for the Eglon in all of us. So we each are going to also become deliverers like Ehud. Ehud, and there is only one way to do it. Let's look at Judges 3, 21 through 22. It says, And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I, uh, I don't know if I understood that last part. Would you read that again? For the hilt went in after the blade, the fat closed no, over the blade. No, that was not the part. There was another phrase in there that, I don't know, it caught me. I, I was distracted because some of the girls grimaced. What, what was that? And the dung came out. Oh! My brothers and sisters, the word of God will drive out every bit of filth in true discipleship. This is way beyond compliance. This is about conquering the nature of the word of God for you personally. The double-edged sword that you fashion in your own life will drive the filth right out of your heart, and it will also defend the people of God against its oppressors. And as a disciple, you are called to be the one piercing Eglon in you so that Ehud will rise up and prevail in your life. Do you got a little Eglon surrounding your sweet, precious, pure little heart? Do you? Yeah. Do you? Well, let the Yehud in you rise with the double-edged sword and drive that filth out of your life. 
My friends, co-workers, fellow laborers in the kingdom, we teach about the double-edged sword in almost every lesson. But are you applying both edges of the sword to the Eglon within you? It's easy to instruct others on what they must do, what the word requires they must do, but are they seeing what the word requires in your repentance from your own Eglon-like traits? I want to tell you a secret. Allowing them to see this transparently is far more effective than letting them watch you take Kiriath Arba from the giants and turn it into Hebron. The fruitfulness of all your discipleship efforts completely depends on the relationship that you display personally in the word before your sons who are your equal brothers. If they see your lack of accountability and your lack of piercing your own soul with the word, what do you think that will produce in them? On the other hand, if they see the word reigns over your private times, if they see the word reigning over your own work ethic, if they see the word reigning over those moments you're uh, seated in the cool room, then the word will reign over every area of their lives as well. Hebrews 4.12 is, of course, reflecting upon this passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and, get this, intentions of the heart. I just wanted to give them an opportunity to live around me. Of course, I also didn't want to do my own dishes. I didn't want my wife to watch our own children. I didn't want to have to do anything, but it was really... It was really for you, Judah. I did all of that for you. The word will pierce your own soul. It will show you motives that you have, that you have hidden from yourself beneath the blubber of Eglon surrounding your heart. Discipleship is above all else sacrificial, not subservient. LCM, if we're going to continue to put signs on these walls and raise up men that kill giants... You have to get this down in your soul. This process for too many churches works like hazing. Well, when I was a disciple, I had to wash my pastor's car. When I was a disciple, I had to carry his bags. When I was a disciple, I waited 10 years for the chance to preach. So now that I'm discipling, guess what I'm going to do to the JV team? It's beyond carnal. That is not discipleship. You sacrifice for them like they are your sons. And you receive them from day one as equal brothers. Listen to verse 13 just so that none of you who are discipling people miss this point. And no creature, that includes the disciple maker. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Discipleship is not hierarchy or a system of control. It breaks my heart personally to see the sinful tendency to take the Talmudim teaching and turn it into something that God never intended when he gave it to me. In fact, it is the mutual submission to the supremacy of the word of God applied to every area of both lives daily. 
You will not escape giving an account for the Eglon that you allowed to remain within your heart and actions. But you have an opportunity right now. You can, you can give the Eglon within a secret message from the Ehud that also resides in you. You can do it right now. You can bury the sword into your own heart and go all the way beyond the hilt. You can extricate that excrement from your own soul. It never should have been a part of your life or actions in Christ in the first place. Cut it out. Remember, you are discipling sons, and they are not sons only. They are first and foremost your equal brothers. Are you guys learning something? So this brings us to our second judgment. We must encourage our disciples to make their own double-edged sword, and we must never fail to use our own on the Eglon within us. Now, that point may not feel as exciting to you as the first one that we've been repeating, but trust me, that is a survival skill and a judgment that you must render in your own life because that judge will become your savior in the years to come. Now, as humorous as these next few verses are, we're going to keep moving for the sake of our time. Now, let's pick up after Eglon is found dead on the toilet and his servants are embarrassed. I mean, he died in there, Luke. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to pick up after those verses. Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed, at that time, about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, abled, and bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Now, when we as disciples, or even disciple makers, practice putting Eglon to death within us, people see our progress in the kingdom. Amen? Now, it sounds like the trumpet in the hill country like sounding the trumpet in the hill country. It rallies other men to the example that we set, and it turns the tide of the battle. Now, I know that I personally am a man that is drawn to these kinds of men that fashion both edges of the sword. I am blessed to be surrounded by godly examples, and I endeavor to become the same kind of example operating in the same conquering spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, is this how you are attempting to lead other men? Do you admire, do they admire your repentance or just your preaching? I want to encourage you that what we need to see as disciples is proper repentance. 
This is far more powerful than preaching alone. Yeah, I feel like we could sit on that for a minute. The truth is, his disciples also like to admire great preaching. And they like to admire it because they envision themselves doing that. And that's, that's going to happen naturally. Of course, what disciples need to admire is great repentance in their leaders, assuming that that is visible, that it can be seen. Because the man who is repenting the most is the one that's closest to God. We're going to have to learn to admire the things that are our future deliverance, not our present glory. Hey, to my fellow elders and pastors, I want to remind you that Ehud killing Eglon, well, it set forth 80 years of freedom for God's people. Now, I personally love the testimony of Othniel, but the testimony of Ehud is even better. Perhaps you fear your weakness is being made known, but you need to remember that our king takes the weakness of man and turns it into strengths for the kingdom. No minister is allowed to operate from a position of his own strengths. This would not glorify the God of the minister. No, Adonai is glorified when your weakness is seen and the Lord's strength is revealed in your weakness. We're an hour and nine minutes in. Should we move to our third judge? Judges 3.31. <clears throat> After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men. <laughs> 600 men. Who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This passage is as moving to me as any passage in all of the Bible. Shamgar didn't have the latest edition of Accordance Bible software. He didn't have the latest download from Logos or whatever else might be considered the most technologically advanced weaponry of his day. What Shamgar possessed was a pointy stick. And... The conquering spirit of Jesus Christ. When men like Samson killed a thousand men in a single instance with the jawbone of an ass, the Bible is explicit that it happened in the very same day. In this case, no time frame is given. Shamgar was moved by the spirit of God to use what Adonai had put in his hands. And then Adonai moved him to begin the deliverance of Israel. As you wrestle with this, I, I personally have the, re, the, the view that 600 men was over Shamgar's lifetime. As I've prayed through this and thought through it and mused it over in my mind, I envision Shamgar stepping out in faith, looking at that pointy stick and going, there's a Philistine. <laughs> yeah, got him. His faith began to grow. And the second day he woke up and said, there's 599 more. I'm in the Philistine killing business. And this is getting to be kind of fun. He built quite a career with a pointy stick in the conquering spirit of Christ. Church, you may not feel like you have the right resources, the right gifting, or the right talents to fight for the house of the book and make a sanctuary for the people of God. 
but that's simply your own faithlessness. It's not humble. It's not Christ-like. It's not moved by the Spirit of God. It's another form of fatty Eglon trying to choke out the faith of Christ in you. One of the greatest battles before you is to look at what you have, not what you do not have. So Pastor Eric and I, we were talking last night, and we came to the conclusion that all disciples can be divided into two categories. Those who are focused on what they do not have and those that are focused on what they do have. Disciples of LCM, you are men that have been given far more than a pointy stick. You have been given men as examples that kill giants, that use the double-edged swords to kill their own Eglon and deliver God's people. You can define yourself by what you still do not have, but you can also define yourself by what you do have. You are not a have-not. You are gaining the courage and proficiency and daring acts of faith by defining yourself as a man who has and not as a man who does not have. This is the season that you are to stand up in your convictions that you possess and strike a blow in the battle for the sanctuary of our God. This is the season for you to come into the possession of your inheritance. I want to look at Matthew 14, verses 14 through 20. This is LCM. You're not already fading, are you? Show some staying power. Stay engaged with this. Grab your pointy stick and go to work. Starting in verse 14. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Church, it is in our nature to think along the lines of what we don't have and all the areas that we still lack in. This may show up in the field of ministry experience, biblical knowledge, or internal confidence to act. Meaning that when you are faced with ministry situations, our hearts are moved with compassion, but you may be facing thoughts of experience that you don't have. Or maybe some biblical knowledge that you don't have. Or even just the internal confidence to act that you may not feel like you possess. The majority of the world thinks this way. And those thoughts cause them to shrink back from the will of God in inspiration of the moment. That's shrinkage. <laughs> it seems perfectly reasonable from, to allow someone else to try or stand back and wait for a better time. 
They feel even noble about the self-awareness of what they lack and feel as if they are giving others the opportunity to minister. It's a convenient cloak for being a coward. Yeah. More often they think that the Lord will handle it himself rather than through their hands. I want you to focus on the command that Jesus gives. You give them something to eat. This hey, is who is you? Yeah. This is what I believe that Jesus is saying to you, men and women of God. Church, the Lord is saying to you, you give them something to eat. Like disciples, you know that you have been given something, but think that it is only five loaves and two fish. In other words, you are tempted to think that you may not have what it takes to benefit your wife spiritually or disciple your children or minister to your friends with authority. Church, you are not a have-not. You are men that have. As disciples of LCM and of the One Association, you have at least enough to start for the battle for the city of the book and do so trusting Adonai. Let your confidence focus you in on what you do have and crucify the thoughts of what you do not have. This will develop you into the perseverance to capture the city and to make it the sanctuary of our God. Time is short, so we're going to pick up in verse 18. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Man, there's a message in that. Thanking God for the pointy stick in your hand. Thanking God for what you do have. Defining yourself by what you have been given instead of what you still do not have. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice that when the disciples took what they did have and put it before the Lord like an offering, that he did something supernatural with it and then put it right back in their hands. Church, when you stop seeing yourself as men that lack or men that do not have and start seeing yourself as men that do have, then what you do have to offer in any situation becomes an acceptable offering before our God. He will do supernatural things with it and then put it back into your hands. Pastors, elders, mentors, this is what discipleship is. We put things into the hands of other men that we greatly value. We can tell whether or not you value your disciples by what you're willing to trust Adonai with and put into their hands. Let's move beyond toilet brushes, and lawnmowers, and teach them that they can take whole cities for our God. The victorious spirit of Jesus Christ will enable them. Do you know how I know that for sure? I've watched that same spirit enable every pastor in the one association. The man that views himself as a have-not never gets to see what he does have multiplied. This is why fears and insecurities turn out to be self-fulfilling prophecies that only grow over time. 
Remember, the Lord gave you a church and a thriving ministry of discipleship precisely because you are a pastor or an elder that has, not a man who does not have. But a fear, inadequacy, caused disciple makers to define themselves as have-nots. Then in our relationship with our disciples who are our brothers, we will not see supernatural multiplication. We will only see their faults, which of course are our faults. Put simply, trying to play it safe and only entrust them with menial tasks is actually a threat to the very relationship that we began in, in discipleship. Leaders, you are men that have disciples. And Adonai will multiply the ability of your disciples. You must boldly offer what you do have before the Lord and trust that he will multiply the conquering spirit and giant killing spirit of Caleb within them. This is also true of our marriages, our ministries, and our relationship with the team members we have, which is why the foundation for all other relationships is marriage. You first learn to trust Adonai to multiply what needs to grow in your spouse because you can't change them. And if you try to control them, it will kill your marriage. You actually have to trust Adonai's work in them. That's why good marriages produce good disciple makers. Let's look at verse 20 in Matthew 14. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Men of the one association, you are a have. You are not a have not. If you start with the courage that you have to offer bold acts of faith, filled leadership with your wife, then with your children, then with your ministry, and ministry relationships and disciples, then you will be satisfied because Jesus will multiply your efforts and you will create a sanctuary for God's people. Moreover, when disciples offered what they did have, someone took home 12 basketfuls afterwards. In other words, the disciples ended up with more than what they started with because God multiplied it. This is when men do not bury what the Lord puts on deposit with him. But the men that end up being given more by Adonai, well, you can see Matthew 25, 21 for a reference for that. Now, however, when a man views himself as a have not and buries what he has been given because of fear and inadequacy, then that man's worst fears come to pass. Now turn your Bibles to Matthew 25, 29. Verse 29 starts off saying, For to everyone who has will be... Wait, wait. For everyone who has... For everyone... For everyone... For everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from everyone who has not. Everyone who has not. 
even what he has will be taken away. Whether you are presently a disciple or a disciple maker, we must entrust to the Lord what we presently have in our hands. This will always result, this will always result in the multiplication of what we have been given from Adonai. Church, it's time to consider the judgment that Shamgar causes us to confront. We must teach our disciples that what God has put in their own hands is enough. The disciples are men that have. They are not men that do not have. Pastors, elders, and mentors, does your speech towards the disciples reveal that you believe Adonai is multiplying what has been put in their hands? Or does your speech reinforce their fears that they are presently inadequate? Are you an Ehud, an Othniel, bringing further deliverance? Or is the voice of Eglon in you causing further subjugation? It's time that we begin to teach our disciples that they are men that have, not men that do not have. If all your disciple possesses is a pointy stick, then the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ will transform it into 12 basketfuls of deliverance. You must trust Adonai to a level that supersedes your own estimation of the men's shortcomings that you disciple. Disciples of the one association, do you view yourselves as men that do not really possess much? This leads to mere and minimum compliance. It is time to become the lion of God. Yes! And fight for the future sanctuary for the people of God. Yes! This is done by forming your own double-edged sword and driving out the Eglon from within. Then you pick up whatever has been placed in your hands and you go to work on behalf of the people of God. Yeah. We've come to the place of our closing at an hour and 26 minutes. I want to review the three saviors of God's people, and the three judgments against the Eglon within. Eglon will war against every one of these, but they are the things that will save the house of the book and create a sanctuary for the people of God in our future. Judgment number one, we must sacrifice for our disciples as if they were our sons and also receive them as equal brothers. Judgment number two, we must encourage our disciples to make their own double-edged sword. And, somebody say and. Yeah. We must never fail to use our own double-edged sword on the Eglon that resides within us still. Yeah. Judgment number three, we must teach our disciples that what God has put in their hands is enough. The disciples are men that have, not men that do not have. For you to get this one right as a disciple maker, you will have to believe it about your disciples. They are what God put in your hands. Amen. We're going to raise sons up 
to equal status and not sit on them like a big fat egglon. Stand to your feet, church. I've applied these things, and Luke has applied these things to our own lives, to your lives, to the lives of people outside this room domestically, and there is an international audience in Romania that this will hit in a very special way. And as much as I've been preaching, and Luke has been preaching on three or four levels, we've come to only one level that matters. And that's what you do with this message next. Have you identified the part of you that likes to sit in the cool room, that loves to pamper yourself, that loves to transfer responsibility to other people? Your life exists for only one reason. Every one of you, there's not an exception in this room. And that is to advance the kingdom of God by advancing his working in the brothers' lives who are around you. It might be time to take the sword that is the word of God and pierce it into your own soul until we get past the fatty Eglon layer and it drives the filth out of our hearts and lives because these these men that we disciple, these women that we disciple, are literally our future deliverance. But that begins by the word of God reigning supremely over your life now. Luke, pray for us, and then we'll see where it goes. Mighty God, I thank you for what you are doing in this body. I thank you for your word that pierces the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Mighty God, that you are raising up men and women in this house that are like Ehud, like Othniel, and like Shamgar. And mighty God, I pray, Lord, that there would be a deposit of a spirit-filled courage, the conquering spirit of Jesus Christ into every man and woman in this room. Mighty God, we love you and we thank you for how you have given us the land, how you are leading us to take back what belongs to the kingdom of God, to fight for the house of the book and for the sanctuary of our God and raising up disciples that will be our deliverers. brothers about these concepts this week and it cut me to the heart many times and I tell you that today I didn't walk away unscathed I want you to hear a passage that came from one of our brothers the people of ministry as he is interacting with this verse so 
as I knelt here at the altar, the Lord clearly spoke this passage out of Jeremiah 48 and verse number 10. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from shedding blood. Can I tell you today that I stand here guilty as charged? You see, the whole time I was in Victoria, I was so focused on what I did not have. When the Lord was clearly telling me, all along I had a sword. And I didn't put it to use. This man of God is bold enough to see where the sword must now be applied. And all of heaven's might is with a man who can bravely stand up and say, oh, I was doing the Lord's work, but I was doing it negligently, slackly, but I can now see what must be done. Saints, this is what it looks like to find freedom. Can I tell you that you can be looking at a man that is thin in his appearance, but as a fat kid at heart? Saints, we are the people of ministry. My brothers in the One Association are active in discipling other men. I am personally working to be active in my faith. I look skinny, but there's still some fat kid at heart inside of me. The more that I begin to engage with the word, I'm recognizing the thoughts that I have that must change in the name of Jesus. I've noticed that many times we can appreciate someone's progress and I can personally say they're getting there. But the problem is I say the same thing every day, year upon year. Man, that's good what is happening there, getting there. See, what Christ has called us to be is a body of brothers, and he's raising up something unique in this house. Sound booth, if you can put Matthew 23, verse 8 back on the screen, I'm going to refer to several other places, but you're going to stay there. Under no circumstances do you go to any other passage that I mention, because we're going to stare at this the entire time. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. Saints, do you know that in this house we have a ministry team that spans three generations? Somebody say that's an incredible thing. Elder Charlie was there when my father came into the faith. We were elevated as brothers and equals to a table of men who have been ministering far longer than we had been alive. And we sit as one group and one table. I can honestly tell you that I'm proud of that and embarrassed that I'm proud of it at the same time because the scripture calls us to go so much further. Genesis, in the 15th chapter and the 16th verse, begins to speak about something that should be expanding every one of our horizons. Speaks about what happens in the fourth generation, not the third. God is speaking to our churches and to this body about something that rises beyond three generations. Something that is coming in the fourth that is exponentially special. 
God spoke to Abraham while he had not received his own inheritance. He didn't have his allotment about the allotment that the fourth generation would receive in the land as the Amorites were driven out. Saints, we want to tell you, you are the fourth generation. You're not getting there. You are a have, not a have not, and you're going to stand, you will rise, and you will inherit the land. In 2 Kings 10, verse 30, there is a special promise that is given. It's about a throne and a kingship, leaders that will rise to the fourth generation. Can I tell you how that promise was achieved? It's by men deciding that they were done with ancient enemies in their day and their time. They would stop at nothing to pierce their own heart, to purge Israel, so that the fourth generation could rise and take their throne and their stand. Fathers in this house, I'm telling you, now is the time for you to purge. Now is the time for you to refuse to accept the way things have always been and demand that in every area that fourth generation rises to take the lead in Israel. In Job 42, 16, there's a special gift given to a man who had persevered under trial. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us to look at his example. You know what happened to this man? This man got to see the fourth generation rise in his own time. Saints, I want to tell you that we need to stop thinking about what disciples and sons will do after we are gone. The blessing for persevering under trial was that Job got to live alongside his fourth generation as they lived in the land together, as they prospered under God's mighty hand. If we will persevere in this manner, means that not long after you're gone that these things will occur. It means that we can have four generations of ministers sitting at the same table, working together and expanding the kingdom of God in supernatural ways. I've learned a few things from the fathers in this house that have made me into their brother. I've watched men who didn't need to be called the leader to lead. We didn't need to be looked at as the man on top of the hierarchy to pour into other men. And as a result, God has done nothing but elevate their lives. Whether you're a leading disciple in this room, whether you're a pastor or elder who's listening or a friend across the sea in Romania, I want to tell you that we must learn to confront a remaining hostile enemy that is between us and seeing a fourth generation at the table. The idea that you pour into or disciple only those who see you as the clear authority. We did not get here by that. We got here by brothers ministering to brothers. Men who did not need to be the point man, but were willing to pour out their lives anyway. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Matthew Pirro is the prime example of that in my life. I've watched him to not need to be the man on the stage, not need to be viewed as the man on top, and yet he poured into them like sons anyway and made them into brothers. Listen to me, pillars. I've gleaned from Elder Charlie's life. Elder Charlie has not only grown in every season being eager to repent unto new works for Jesus Christ, 
is a grandfather that is only for the sons that are coming up and never against. You heard us on Tuesday. We need a house full of elders. We need a house full of elders because we're going to have four generations of ministers in this house and we will see ministers and elders sown into nations beyond because we are raising up arrows in the plural that will be fired into the nations. Saints, it just so happens that we are going to be in Acts 15 on Tuesday and it is going to be amazing and I'm not revealing any of it to you yet except to tell you that the supernatural judgments that they come to could never have happened if disciples were not elevated into brothers. The entire scenario is based upon what we have been speaking about with the people of ministry who rose up in their calling, who attacked and captured the land, Luke. And they come together at one table and they find out what God's will is, and it blesses literally the nations of the known world. At this point in our lives, it's time that we are praying for the prophetic vision of the fourth generation, the ability to see it and pass up your own inheritance, even to your own hurt to see them succeed. That we clear the land of our ancient and lingering enemies so that the fourth can go on to fight larger battles. And that like Job and his perseverance, we do whatever it takes to be at the table with them and not in some future tense or after we are gone, but to be at the table with the fourth generation. We're gonna go back into worship here in just a minute. And we have two of the most anointed victorious men to do it. I'm talking about disciples that are going to be pastors. In fact, they already are pastors. They're just growing in the recognition of what they already have. And as we do, this kind of message deserves our contemplation, but it should call you to holy faith and daring action. So while we worship in a victorious manner, I want you to take assessment of how you can build into your marriage better, how you can build into your team from that overflow better, and how you can learn to raise up sons as equal brothers around you. And by God, look for a way to put it into practice before the sun sets on us today. Mighty one, we extol you. But we say you're a holy and a righteous God. <laughs> 